Welcome to Taboo. It's the show that discusses taboo topics in the sunny island of Malta. So, hi. <laughs> hi, Georgie. Hi. Uh, can you introduce yourself to our audience, please? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, my name is Georgie Williams. Um, my pronouns are they, them. Um, I am a uh, deferred doctoral researcher at University College Dublin um, in the Department of Social Work, Social Policy and Social Justice. Um, I have a Master's in Gender Research at LSE, London School of Economics, uh, Undergrad in Psychology, and I'm also the founder of Slash Queer, which is a volunteer-run research organisation that looks at recording the gendered and sexual histories of communities all around the world. Amazing, okay. <laughs> so let's jump into it. What does gender and sexuality mean to you? Oh God, that's such a broad question, isn't it? <laughs> um, so... Sexuality is um, the ways through which we experience attraction to others. And attraction is in itself a broad term. Um, sexual attraction can be to do with um, the relationships we want to have with somebody's body. Um, we can also experience romantic attraction as well, aesthetic attraction. Attraction is a very complex concept. Um, and so is sexuality, the way that we shape relationships with each other, the way we desire one another is very nuanced. Um, and the way we define sexuality is also culture bound. So the ideas that we have about, um, you know, what relationships are taboo are very contingent on, on you know, one community or another. Um, and with regards to gender, gender is... Um, predominantly a psychological phenomena. So this is how we perceive ourselves with regards to socially constructed concepts like masculinity or femininity. And this can be related to aspects of our body like our physical sex, which is in itself a very complex concept, um, but it can also be separated from that as well. Um, I often say that gender is as unique as the self. Wow, okay. All right. So you classify yourself as non-binary. Like, what does that mean? So non-binary is really interesting because people often treat it like a third gender identity, and that's not the case. <laughs> um, non-binary means that you do not identify win within the binary. And when we're talking about a binary, we're talking about male and female, mm -hmm. this Western concept of two genders where everybody fits into one box or the other. And these boxes are diametrically opposed. They're <laughs> supposed to be opposites, right? Mm -hmm. And to say you're non-binary, it's kind of like an umbrella term, right? There's a lot that's inside that. So to go into the specificities for me um, as a non-binary person, that's not the term I always used. I use it now because it's well known. The term I first started using uh, when I came out at 18 was genderqueer, which means quite simply my gender is queer. It's outside of the normal bounds of what's considered um, uh, common with regards mm -hmm. to gender and sexuality. Mm -hmm. um, and for me, uh, I do also use the term transgender to describe myself, which surprises people because they usually look at me and they go, well... You're someone who's assigned female at birth. Mm -hmm. you, you also present in a very feminine way. And I usually say, well, yes, with an asterisk on that yes. Um, I'm someone who is on testosterone. Um, okay. And I'm looking to androgenize my body. Um, I have recently shaved off the world's saddest teenage boy mustache that I was growing. Um, only because I'm waiting for that to come in better because I look like a, a discount Gomez Adams when I have it. Um, but... For me, um, expressing my gender identity means taking testosterone so that I can, A, grow facial hair, um, B, have a higher muscle mass, and C, little, like a little bit more in between what we would describe as feminine and masculine. I still want to have my silly legolas hair, um, and I still want to wear makeup, and I still want to wear quite feminine clothing. But I want to express my identity in a way that's a little more subversive mm -hmm. um, and a little more unexpected for somebody who is assigned female at birth. But what it means for me to be non-binary is very different to what it might mean to somebody else as well. To be not of the binary, it's so broad. And what that means for individuals is going to vary hugely. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about the spectrum here, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, which saying that gender is a spectrum is still considered so controversial. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it is. When I said earlier that gender is as individual as the self, it really is. Um, there is a, a term in, in philosophy. Um, uh, it's called a, a qualia. 
and uh, aqualia, or sometimes pronounced qualia, is um, a kind of one's unique experience of something, almost like colours, right? I often use colour when I'm kind of creating analogies for gender identity. So, for example, this microphone here, we can probably agree that most of it's red, right? But I have absolutely no idea what red actually looks like to you. Now, if you described red, you'd probably say, well, it's a hot colour, it's an angry colour, I associate it with this or that or this type of flower, right? But all of those things are things that we've kind of just agreed red is. It's not necessarily something that you're uniquely perceiving with your eyes. Mm -hmm. So your idea of what red is and my idea of what red is might be slightly different. And gender's the same. Your feelings about what's masculine or feminine within yourself, yes, they can be contingent on the things that we build in society to kind of describe these identities, but it's still something we universally, individually experience. Um, mm -hmm. And when I talk about colour as well with regards to gender, I often use that to explain how non-binary identities can exist. So if we imagine a world where we have split up all colours into two groups, right? We've got maybe red, purple and blue in group one. And then we have a yellow and green and know, pink in group two. I'm not a colour expert, bear with me. <laughs> um, but we have, let's say, two set groups for kind of colours. And we go to other communities and they say, well, you know, that's not just group one, that's, that's red or that's purple. And we say, oh, yeah, but they're all that same thing, aren't mm -hmm. they? Mm -hmm. And we do the same thing with masculinity and, and femininity. We say, well, that thing can't be distinct from that thing because they're both masculine. And actually, we've just created boxes to mm -hmm. explain these things and conceptualize these things. And yes, there are fundamental aspects of physical sex that are related to what we conceive as masculinity and femininity. But then there's things outside of the bounds of physical sex that are nothing to do with that at all. Um, you know, there's aspects of masculinity and femininity that are entirely constructed on the ideas about how men and women should behave and should present themselves and the things that they should mm -hmm. or shouldn't like. And, <clears throat> sorry, your studies have gone into like how this is different in different cultures, right? Mm -hmm. So there's gender roles, gender norms, like societal expectations of, of um, what that gender is presenting. So how did you, number one, how did you find, well, discover that you're non-binary, first of all, in your culture that you grew up in? Mm. And how did that then explode into your podcast and your studies? <laughs> I mean, so I grew up in a small town. Um, I grew up in a small town uh, on the south coast of England. Um, and I grew up as well, I spent most of my time in quite a conservative family. So I've got a Scottish mother, South African father, um, and I spent most of my time with uh, my mother. And there wasn't the language when I was young to describe these kinds of things. And so, you know, I, I got a feeling for it, but it wasn't something that I could really articulate until I got much older. And there were signs from a young age. So for me, between the age of about seven and 13 years old, I was almost convinced that I'd maybe been born a boy and then had something done to me as a child and had it hidden. I had no evidence for this. Mm -hmm. I would check things like doctor's letters when they came through <laughs> in the post, but I just had this gut feeling that something wasn't right. Mm -hmm. And obviously, because I didn't know about gender identity in the way that we maybe do a little more now, I thought about physical sex first, because you kind of do, right? If you're raised to believe that sex and gender are synonymous terms and something feels off with your gender, you, you'll usually question your physical sex. So I remember that happening when I was young. And then at the, around the age of 14, I started uh, binding my chest, which wasn't something I did all the time, but some of the time I wanted to do that. So I would flatten my chest with pairs of like tights or stockings, because obviously there wasn't anything else available. And I'll add as well, I, I hadn't been exposed to the idea of chest binding. I, I did this organically because it was something that I wanted to do um, to feel more comfortable in my own body. And I remember being maybe 16 or 17 years old in school and having a conversation with and, and around my friendship group. And, you know, I was... Never somebody who wanted to, and we use the term pass now, I never never wanted to pass as a man, but I considered myself somebody who had both masculine and feminine attributes. Um, 
in a way that doesn't have to mean anything about your gender identity. You could just be gender non-conforming. Um, but I remember one of my friends saying, well, Georgie's not a girl or a boy. Georgie's just Georgie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I didn't realize at the time or didn't understand at the time why that felt good to me, why that was something that felt affirming to me. I felt seen by somebody saying that. Um, and then when I was about 18 years old, you know, I was kind of doing my own research, quote unquote, or having a look around on the Internet. And I came across, you know, this term of, of genderqueer. I'd seen it kind of in passing before, but I was like, my God, that's what it is for me. Um, and I didn't really use the term transgender to describe myself back then. But that's also because I had a very reductive idea about what transgender means, which I think a lot of us are taught that to be transgender is to um, transition mm-hmm. in a medical sense, right? When that's not the case, um, cis and trans as uh, prefixes just mean kind of aligned or misaligned. So we see it in chemistry with cis and trans isomers. I'm not going to get into chemistry. <laughs> I failed my chemistry A-levels, so let's not get into that. Um, but you know, cis isomers, um, you have particular points on on one side of a particle and then trans is on opposing sides. And that's kind of what it means. To be cisgender just means that your identity is the same as the one that you were assigned at birth. And transgender means that your identity is different to the one you were assigned at birth. So for you, was there an element of body dysmorphia from what you were saying when you looked in the mirror, like identifying with yourself and how you see yourself internally? So body dysmorphia is such an interesting concept. Mm-hmm. Um, gender, Well, see, body dysmorphia and gender dysphoria are slightly different things. Okay. Um, so with body dysmorphia, when we talk about that in psychology, we are talking about... Um, an irrational misinterpretation and misperception of the body. Um, So we're looking at the body and we're seeing it wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's why we feel distress. Gender dysphoria is considered a rational and proportionate response to the body being misaligned with our gender identity. Mm -hmm. Um, Not to say that it's the wrong body. That's a kind of notion that's incorrectly shared around. But it's more like the way that the body is gendered in society, the ideas that we have about what a feminine body or a masculine body is supposed to look like, can sometimes be incongruent with how we feel our body should present ourselves. And so, yes, I have experienced gender dysphoria, um, and that has been difficult at times, but it has come and gone, and it's presented itself in a myriad of different ways throughout my life. And there's also a lot of transgender people, especially in non-Western cultures, that don't experience gender dysphoria because they don't have the same rigid ideas in their culture about how different bodies are supposed to present themselves. But my curiosity about this subject that came from a very personal place for me um, was the reason that I got into this research, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of a common phrase um, that I hear a lot in academia that uh, most research is me-search. You know, you're trying to make sense of something that you personally experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And for me, not just as a non-binary person, but also someone who's not heterosexual, I came out at 15 years old um, and I was all but disowned for my sexuality by my mother. Um, my mother was homophobic in a way that I didn't expect, um, and it irreparably damaged our relationship. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. for me, I got to a point when I was doing my, my undergrad of, of psychology, um, where I wanted to contribute something to the social movement that is now a lot more visible than it was when I was doing my undergrad in 2013. Um, that means that in 20 or 30 years time, we look at parents who have disowned their queer children or gender or sexuality diverse children and we say my god how could anyone have done that you know how can you get to the point where your unconditional love is conditional on things like gender and sexuality um and I think one of the reasons that there's a lot of anxiety about gender and sexuality especially right now is the lack of education but the lack of accessible education, Mm -hmm. plain language explanations of these things um, that aren't behind a paywall Mm -hmm. that, you know, people from uh, more socioeconomically disadvantaged backgrounds who haven't been able to go to university Mm -hmm. can learn from without feeling threatened by a subject like this, Mm -hmm. because I think Mm -hmm. it is intimidating. 
Yeah, and I think besides that as well, having a community of people and mental health support to actually get you through that. Because it's you have to be brave, yeah, in a way when you're coming out. <laughs> yeah. So it's admitting it to yourself and admitting it to the world, and that that's that takes courage at the end of the day, right? It does. It really does. And I think the thing that I often see be misunderstood about this is that the individual doesn't change. This is you bringing layers of yourself to the surface, mm-hmm. um, often when you feel safe to be able to, you know. Um, my gender identity, there were signs about it being different to the one I was assigned at birth from a very young age. When I grew up in an isolated community where I had never seen someone like me, and yet this emerged. And the signs with my sexuality were absolutely there from a young age as well. Um And this wasn't me being influenced by some kind of media, you know, this didn't come from a place of, you know, bad mental health or some kind of insecurity. Um, This was me feeling comfortable enough to be honest with myself and honest with the people around me. Mm -hmm. Coming out is a, a gift that I think you give to people. It is this act of extreme vulnerability. I've often described it as like placing a baby bird in someone's hands and asking them not to crush it, right? Yeah. Um, When you say, here is something that I have been taught is wrong about me Mm -hmm. and I am asking you to agree with me that maybe this isn't the worst thing in the world. Mm -hmm. And that's a terrifying thing, especially to do at a young age, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, I am seeing, at least with regards to sexuality, more and more accepting parents, more supportive parents, But there's still a long way to go with things like gender identity. Yeah, I think, well, first of all, there isn't that, like you said, there isn't much awareness or education on the subject, especially MOLT. I don't don't think, I don't think there is at all. Well, we have a huge LGBTIQ community, um, but at school, we were never taught this. We were never taught that there are different identities, like, and that's the thing. How would you know? while you're developing during puberty, like you'd feel something is wrong, but most people are scared enough to explore their sexuality or their gender identity, you know, especially because religion is a huge factor in Malta Mm -hmm. and most people feel like they're doing something wrong or they're going to be damned, you know, if they try different things out. Mm. So I guess it's like going from one extreme to the other. Most people feel that, okay, (laughs) might as well go all the way then, you know, if I'm going to experiment, I'm going to experiment sort of, yeah. So what advice would you give to people who are scared to come out or scared to actually admit what they're feeling on the inside? That is a huge question. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I was, so my mother did describe herself as Christian, not actively practicing, whatever that really means. But she said that we had Christian values. Um, And I think in a religious country, um, especially like a quite a Catholic country as well, the ideas that we have about gender and the body and sexuality as well, um, it's so sensitive. Mm-hmm. And there's only so much that I can speak from a, a religious standpoint, but there is a quote in, I believe, a book. I might get the name wrong. I think it's called Something That May shock and discredit you I might get that wrong but there is a line in it where a um transgender character Julian says um God made me for the same reason that he made grapes and not wine and wheat and not bread so that humanity itself may partake in the act of transformation and I remember coming across that and thinking my god what a wonderful interpretation that people who are outside of the norms of gender but also sexuality are designed to go through this transformative process to connect with themselves, that Mm -hmm. so little of the world remains in stasis, right? Um, And that growth can be this beautiful, incredible, affirming thing. And I think the advice I would give to people is that You grow and change throughout your life, right? There is no aspect of you that will stay the same from birth to death. And it makes sense that something like your gender or sexuality would develop through your life as well and change as you connect with who you are. And if you are 
under the impression that you are one in a million or one in a thousand, you couldn't be further from the truth. We're out there, and we're out there in countries all around the world. One of the things that I teach about when I lecture on this is that there are about 25 terms for what we, in the West and in English language, would boil down to meaning transgender. Around 25 terms. Many of these terms predate the term transgender mm -hmm. um, being coined in English language um, because this variation has always been out there. It is fundamental to the human condition. It is part of what it means to be a human being that not all of us are straight, not all of us are cisgender. And we still contribute something to our community just by existing like that. Mm -hmm. I think it is profoundly brave. And I think that there is strength in numbers and there are so many of us out there. None of us mm -hmm. actually have to do this on our own. And when you come out, you can connect with other people within your community mm. in the most profound and affirming ways. So you're saying that by saying it in a very organic, natural way, you're kind of removing the stigma and the negativity around it and you're more free kind of to explore your gender identities and sexuality. Yeah, I think, I think identity is something that is inherently political <laughs> and there are ways in which... Um, societies are controlled through these power structures, right, of gender, of sexuality, of morality policing, policing, where we say, you know, this thing is, is right and this thing is wrong. Um, and there are particular people who have benefited from these power structures for most of history. Um, and it is normal and part of the human condition for this variation mm -hmm. to exist just on a scientific level. It mm -hmm. is the most normal thing. We see it in species, or, you know, everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, and gender is one of those things that is actually weirdly um, very human bound. You know, mm -hmm. animals have physical sex, sure, but gender is its own mm -hmm. kettle of fish. Um, but yeah, this this kind of experience of, of exploring your identity is normal and natural and healthy and I don't want people to underestimate what a gift it is to the people around you just to be visible as someone who is authentically themselves mm -hmm. you know the conversations that I have had with people some of whom have been older than me who have said well I've felt the way that you've been describing for years some of them you know 30 40 years and they're like maybe it's not the end of the world maybe Maybe my life doesn't set itself on fire <laughs> just because I start to use language to describe myself differently if I start to present myself outside of the norm. Mm -hmm. And yeah, mm -hmm. in a way that I found a little disappointing, especially when I started testosterone, life just goes on, you know? And one of the things I do like to say about gender and sexuality is um, there are bigger problems in the world yeah. than how somebody presents themselves and, and what <laughs> relationships people develop amongst you know consenting adults um yeah there's bigger problems for sure and you mentioned language so talking about gender pronouns so this came out kind of quite recently mm. um so what is the importance of them Oof. let's just go into that a bit <laughs> okay so um there are lots of languages um especially in europe where everything is gendered right everything tables and <laughs> balloons and like you name it it's gendered yeah. um which is a little reductive and often plays upon stereotypes as well that we have long-standing stereotypes about what femininity and masculinity is um and pronouns in particular are a great way of kind of demonstrating your identity to somebody pronouns don't equal gender that's one of the things i want to make clear right um and we see it in the way that especially gay men might be like, oh, she said this and she is a gay man, right? Or refer to each other as girl. Doesn't mean these are people who identify as women. It's just the language we use to describe ourselves. It's a long-standing history of um, lesbians using he, him pronouns as well. Still lesbians, but a pronoun is a pronoun. It's just the way you want to be referred to. Mm -hmm. um, doesn't need to be the end of the world. For me, I use they, them pronouns because... Um, I mean, I, I, it's how I feel most comfortable. Um, I, for a long time, actually used he and she and they. 
But the problem was is that people would look at me and go, well, I feel more comfortable referring to this person as she. Um, so I had to confiscate the other pronouns until people <laughs> learned to play nicely with them. Um, and I, I do have, I have friends who I trust to use he and she and they because I know that when they use she for me, it's not because they're looking at me and just going, well, I've decided this person is a woman. It's often somebody who knows the intimacies of my identity mm -hmm. that sometimes I don't want to make visible, right? Sometimes I don't want to have to disclose to legitimize my identity. You know, when somebody decides they're just going to refer to me as she once they actually know me on some level, that is difficult for me because I'm someone who is very open about having experienced gender dysphoria through, you know, various aspects of, of my body and how I'm perceived. I'm also someone who is on testosterone, who is trying to change how they are perceived. But that's not always the most straightforward experience either. Um, and to be referred to as they um, is something that I feel recognised in it. And one of the things that I often hear is people saying, well, it's not, it's not grammatically correct, which two things first and foremost they was a singular pronoun before you was a singular pronoun in the english language it just fell out of fashion so they predates you um and also secondly my god even if you were correct and it was apparently grammatically incorrect are you telling me that grammar matters more to you than making your your equal appear in your life feel respected and acknowledged yeah, I think there are two levels. So the first level would be, for example, if I don't know you and I make a mistake, mm. and I guess that's fine. Yeah, you know, then I can just ask, you mm. know, because um, a lot of people get kind of scared and then intimidated, and then that snowballs into getting angry. Yeah, when they don't know, and then the second tier is what you're saying. So I know you very well, but then I refuse. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to respect that. Yeah, you know what I mean. And I'd say you yeah. know the the individuals who do the latter in the minority, the majority of people um, just you know, and I get it. Of course, you're going to assume that I'm sheep, especially based on how I'm presented today as well. Um, and that's not a crime, of course not, um, because especially the way that that society operates, we you know, are always making assumptions. Mm -hmm. It's also how the human brain works, you know, psychologically. Mm -hmm. um, we want to be able to make assumptions to speed things up to make life more efficient, right? Yeah. So, yeah, yeah of course, you're going to... I'm a babe. People will go, it's a she. Um, <laughs> but, you know, in those moments, I'd usually go, oh, hey, just FYI, I actually go by they, them pronouns. Mm -hmm. Complex, mystical, non-binary. Um, but in all seriousness, you know... The way that it usually goes is that I say, well, yeah, I'm just, if you could use they or them, I'd actually much prefer that. Mm -hmm. And people are usually quite comfortable. And you know what? They might slip up while they're practicing because, exactly. you yes. know, it takes practice. It does. You have to reframe how you look at someone. Yes. Yes. But we are all learning. You know, it is, it is a learning process. And I often say to people, I didn't just pop out the womb knowing these things. <laughs> it's my job to teach it, but I didn't. You know, I yeah. grew up in a conservative environment. Um, I grew up with a parent who was racist and homophobic and transphobic, and I did have to do work to unlearn those things, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. um, and I think a lot of the anxieties we have about, you know, especially gender identity, comes from this fear of being perceived as a bad person. And I think there needs to be a little bit of grace for the fact that, everyone's going through a, a transitional period with learning these things. Mm -hmm, for sure. And you mentioned that you're on testosterone. So yeah. how easy was it to access that? So I'm sure you had to like go to a GP or something to get it. And how did you feel after you started taking it? Um, so the situation in the UK right now for the trans community is dire. Um, it's actually quite critical. Um, it's so bad, actually, that I want to say in, God, I'm going to get the dates wrong on this. I wanted to say like 2016, 2017, but it might have been slightly earlier, maybe 2014, 2015. Um, but you can check this out. There was an article on the Guardian uh, website about it at the time. A transgender woman from the UK was granted asylum in New Zealand because they said that it would basically be an infringement of her human rights if she was sent back to the UK because it was transphobic, because it was transphobic there. Um, and that was then. The climate now is much worse. 
we have a big issue with um, self-described trans-exclusionary radical feminists who are individuals who they believe they are feminists and they also believe that transgender women aren't women. Um, the most famous probably of all of them is, is J.K. Rowling, um, author of the Harry Potter series, um, who is exclusively using her platform to endanger the lives of transgender people. And the climate right now in terms of that, in terms of obviously, I don't know if you've noticed that we're just cycling through prime ministers like nobody's business. <laughs> um, <laughs> deeply embarrassing. <laughs> We've changed prime ministers just whilst I've been in Malta. And I arrived a couple of weeks ago. Um, because our um, political climate is unstable, because our... Um, economy is in crisis because the our national health service is being severely depleted of funding um the healthcare access for transgender people is critical so there was a report by gendered intelligence or a fantastic organization in the uk um that came out last year that estimated that in the next i believe couple of years the wait time for an adult gender identity clinic in london will reach 26 years I also had that response, and even though this is my field, I was like, that can't be right. That's that's an exaggerated number. And I went and I checked and I had a look at their, the maths behind it, and um, you can find the report uh, online as well. It's on their website, I believe, and also I think on their Twitter account. Um, yeah, 26 years. Is this because there's a huge waiting list or because of the lack of medicine and It's It's the waiting list. It's the lack of staff um, who are adequately trained as well. Um we just don't have the um, infrastructure right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lack of, of um, suitable gender identity clinics that can provide these services. Mm-hmm. Um, not to mention the fact that there's so many hoops you have to jump through in order to get adequate treatment. Um, so for me, um, I looked at going privately and then even privately there were wait lists and I had to outsource accessing my testosterone to another country. Um, and I'm not the only person. Um, this is becoming quite normalised in the UK that a lot of individuals are basically saying, well, I'm going to have to do it myself. I'm going to have to check my own uh, levels when I get blood tests as well. Um, in fact, I, as, as part of, of the Slash Queer project, I interviewed um, the head of the, well, the chair of the Gender Identity Research and Education Society in the UK called Gyres, uh, Kat Burton, and she... Um, she did it herself as well. She she went on estrogen and she told her GP and said, look, I know you're not a gender identity specialist, so all you're going to do is you're going to check my liver function um, on this blood test and I'm going to check my other levels. I'm going to do this myself. So unfortunately, to be a transgender person in the UK... You have to be an endocrinologist, you have to be an anthropologist, you have to be a psychologist, you have to be a social activist. You have to really be able to represent the whole trans community just to transition safely. And that's if you've got the resources, because obviously people who can't afford to do so are just kind of sitting... Yeah, absolutely. As they are, you know? Yeah, and it's a crisis, it really is, um, because access to transgender healthcare is life-saving. It is life-saving, especially in the current climate where if you're a transgender person and you don't pass as as the cisgender equivalent of a man or a woman, right, you are so much less safe in the UK. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, The rate of um, transgender hate crimes is going up exponentially in the UK, especially work-related hate crimes, um, which is quite scary. Um, the fact that that could happen in your workplace. And so the problem is, if you don't have access to things like hormones or gender-affirming surgeries, even going out to buy milk is going to put you in danger, right? And I have so many transgender friends who have been harassed in the street, who have been physically and verbally attacked, just trying to live their lives. These are not people that are trying to do anything radical or, or, you know, harmful in society. They're just trying to live and feel comfortable in their bodies. And the fact that they can't go outside without being put in danger. um, Yeah, it's a national crisis. I'm really sorry to hear that. Um, And have you seen this in other countries too, like in Malta when you came here? Or is it just a UK thing? (laughs) I mean, okay, the UK is especially bad. Mm -hmm. Um, But 
there's different aspects of this in lots of different countries. Malta is is pretty good in terms of transgender rights. Um, you know, especially compared to other European countries, especially compared to Eastern European countries, um, there's still obviously a huge amount of work to be done. Mm-hmm. Malta is also, interestingly, a country that's very good for intersex rights, where obviously intersex individuals are those who um, their bodies present in various ways outside of the normative bounds of uh, male or female physical sex. Um, 1.7% of the global population are intersex, which same occurrence rate as redheads. So if you've ever met a ginger person, you've just as likely met an intersex person. So what is intersex? Is it the same as non-binary? No, 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 no. Okay. Uh, non-binary transgender, we're dealing with gender identity, Mm -hmm. right? Intersex, we're dealing with, uh, physical sex characteristics. Okay. So Mm -hmm. when we talk about physical sex characteristics, we could be talking about, uh, genitalia. Um, we could be talking about... Um, uh, secondary sex characteristics so you know the development of the body at puberty we could be talking about uh, hormones we could also be talking about chromosomes Um, so usually when we talk about chromosomes we assume that male sex individuals are always XY chromosomes female sex are always XX Um, and that's not necessarily the case an individual can appear a female or male sex and have totally different chromosomes Mm -hmm. actually Mm -hmm. um you can have XXY, XYY, triple XY. There's a myriad of, of different presentations. Yeah, I've, I've read some studies, in fact, of intersex people who were assigned a gender once they were born by their parents. Yeah. And then the suicide rate actually skyrocketed because they found out later on in life that that's not who they were. So they I, decide. I think the thing to clarify here is that it is so rarely the parents that have any say in this. Um, it's okay. it's the medical professionals mm-hmm. because let's be honest, right? Um, any of us could have a child, right, and have not had any kind of education on the prevalence of intersex, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So if a medical professional is telling you or insinuating that your child is one in a million, right? Of course, you are going to want your child to fit in. So when they suggest things like surgeries to make your child look more conventionally of male or female sex, you're probably going to allow this. So I often say, you know, the parents are ill-informed. They're not properly given the information that they need to to make an educated decision by the medical professionals that are supporting them. Mm -hmm. And so in the vast majority of countries around the world, children are forcibly surgically reassigned before the age of medical consent. Some of them don't even know. They aren't even told. Malta, interestingly, is one of five countries in the world where that is illegal. Yeah. But there's only five countries. So, yeah, congratulations to Malta on that front. They're doing something right. It's amazing. So what would you suggest actually change the climate in this sense? So you mentioned the issues in the UK, Eastern Europe. You've been all around the world. And as we discussed, it isn't new as a subject. So it's been there for thousands of years? Yes, arguably. Um, There's indigenous communities around the world who have um, recognized, you know, different gender kind of structures for a long time. Um, One of the examples I often give is um, the Bugis community in Indonesia, uh, predominantly in in South Sulawesi in Indonesia. Um, The Bugis are comprised of uh, six million Indonesian citizens. So this isn't a small community. And traditionally, the Bugis have recognised a five-gender and three-sex social system. So that third sex being the intersex community, which in itself is an umbrella term, but we won't get too far into (laughs) that. Um, But they've had five gender identities. And... The only reasons why that's been kind of adversely impacted um, is, A, Dutch colonialism. And my God, how often is colonialism the issue with with gender identity around the world? Um, But also the impact of Western media, Mm. importing Western media that uh, is homophobic, is transphobic, that has rigid ideas about what is male and what is female and no space for anything else. Um, And the Bugis is one of a host of different communities that I could tell you about that traditionally this gender binary was um, just completely irrelevant to their their community. So possibly using those channels to actually promote 
all this in a positive light might actually help but social media has <laughs> it's kind of <laughs> well yeah and not just social media but just media you know in general um our our television and our film mm-hmm. and our books and everything like that um and you know not all of this has been directed and intentional either you know when we when we think about how different the world is now compared to 100 years ago when we think about globalization we are so interconnected in a way that we never used to be but what that means is that our social values bleed across geographical borders in the way that they didn't used to because mm-hmm. we didn't have this kind of this web um and so obviously the values of different communities start to impact one another and we have had this issue with western media being overtly homophobic and overtly transphobic and this having a detrimental impact on communities and in countries all around the world you know north africa india indonesia you know, singapore thailand there's so many communities they used to have a vastly different idea about gender and sexuality before the impact of the west either through colonialism or through forms of media Mm-hmm. I think slowly, slowly there are celebrities coming out, like the whole Caitlyn Jenner episode. <laughs> um, but that's actually, obviously, there are positives and negatives to it. But it brought about an awareness, I guess, about the whole subject. Because before that, I'm, I don't really remember during my time yeah. of a celebrity coming out like that. You know? Yeah, and there's so there was um, a, a period in kind of recent history called the transgender tipping point in 2016 which is actually it's it's coined after that was a the headline of a uh an what's the word i'm looking for um not an episode of like um time magazine brought mm-hmm. out an issue an issue it was an issue <laughs> of time magazine um yeah. it was called the transgender tipping point and it had mm-hmm. laverne cox on the front of it yeah um who for the record i think is bloody brilliant and represents the trans community in a way that caitlin Je- jenner never could um <laughs> And, yes, suddenly there was this increased visibility for the trans community. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that has its positives and negatives. Yes, my God, how wonderful that we can now have, especially young trans people, you know, watching something on TV and going, oh, my God, that's me, you know, and feeling less like one in a million. Mm -hmm. But also, and and forgive me, I'm going to bring in something from from my previous academic days, which is... um, Michel Foucault's idea of visibility is a trap. Um, I got a lot I could say about Foucault. I won't. Um, I, we got beef. Um, but but I do agree with that um, phrase in the sense that once people have the language to refer to you, they can either do it with respect or they can do it to dehumanise you. Mm-hmm. And I think the fact that trans people are more visible right now, be they binary or non-binary does now mean that more people know how to rally around this in a hateful way. Um, that when people were largely much more ignorant, trans people did, to a certain extent, live their lives slightly more safely than they do, at least in the UK right now, uh, where this is constantly in the media. There's constantly uh, papers, if you can call them that, like the Daily Mail, writing horrendous articles about this community. And it very much mirrors, um, and sometimes the headlines are almost exactly the same as the ones that were being written about the gay community in the 80s and 90s. The same um, like misrepresentation of the trans community as being predatory, in the same way that they talked about the gay community um, in, in the UK for a long time, as being kind of perverse or dangerous to children. And yeah, the problem is once you become visible, um, you know, some media outlets will latch onto your community um, to sensationalize, you know, what your community and, and what they represent and create these stories that, you know, obviously create a strong emotional response in mm-hmm. people who are probably quite scared and probably quite anxious about all this. Probably as well, obviously, <clears throat> if we're talking about, <clears throat> sorry, my voice is going, <laughs> if we're talking about media agencies, obviously it relates back to the owners who have their own political agenda and we're going into a more conservative right-wing political agenda, you know, all over Europe. Um, so yeah, that, that affects, that trickles down then into what kind of, to the journalists, what kind of stories we're writing, which affects the perceptions of societies. So I guess that's why it's very important to challenge what we read and what we see and not take it for the word of God, basically, you know. 
Yeah, and yeah. also just have conversations not on social media. My God, it's a conversation I actually had with somebody the other day um, who kind of moves in the same activist circles. And we were saying that there is no room for nuance on social media. You know, TikTok is is a good example. You can have videos that are usually like 15 to 60 seconds. Anything that's any longer, most people aren't going to watch. You know, I believe Twitter is 280 characters per tweet. There is absolutely no space for nuance. Um, and a good example of this is there is a transphobic uh, dog whistle, you know, a phrase that's used to basically signal that you're transphobic to somebody else who's also a transphobe, which is, and the dog whistle is so ridiculous, it's sex is real, which, yes, this is the thing that annoys me, is that, yes, physical sex is real, of course it is, but your, you know, 16-year-old um, mainstream education understanding of, of biology is reductive enough that your idea of what physical sex is isn't the case. There's a reason why people can study what physical sex is up to postdoctorate level because it's incredibly complex, right? Mm -hmm. So yes, actually, sex is real. But if you say something with that phrase on social media, the majority of people that are going to be interested are transphobic people, right? And you're probably going to come across as transphobic, but we're even talking about it in 20, 280 characters or less, right? Yeah, yeah. And so I implore people to have conversations with trans and or non-binary people outside of the realms of social media, where there can be a dialogue, where we explain mm -hmm. some of these misconceptions, because otherwise I think a lot of that nuance is, is lost in the ether. For sure. That's a lot, of, a lot to digest. <laughs> Sorry, yes, it <laughs> really know, is. <laughs> so, um, to close off, mm. what would you like to say to, your, to the audience about this whole subject? So, conclusion. <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, I guess what I would want our audience to take away from today is that, first and foremost, uh, the history of gender and sexuality is more complex than we could imagine. Mm -hmm. The history of gender and sexuality is the history of humans. Mm -hmm. um, and I will also say that if they want to learn more about that, they can come over and listen to, to my podcast that I do where I, I teach about this for free. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I made Slash Queer to allow people to learn about what this looks like in countries all around the world. And it is, it's out there, it's varied, um, and it's immensely complex mm -hmm. um so yeah not only is is the history of, of gender and sexual diversity human history but also we're just people you know there is so much to who i am mm -hmm. outside of my gender and my sexuality these are the things that i i care about yes but i've also kind of been forced to care about them. I've had to get onto my wee soapbox because people just weren't treating me like a regular human being because they didn't understand mm -hmm. these things. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we're not trying to do anything radical. One of the things I often hear is, is people saying, well, you're trying to make children trans transgender. No, we're not. Trans people are trying to make sure that your transgender kids grow up safe. Your cisgender kids can do whatever they want, uh, as they always have done, you know? Um, we are just trying to make sure that people are safe, happy, and healthy. And I think that the vast majority of us, deep down, that is the motivation for what we do, right? Um, there is a sense of, of commonality to be found in wanting to protect one another and understand one another. Mm -hmm. um, and I think if you know, subjects like gender and sexuality are something that is intimidating to you. Connect with people, have honest conversations, be willing to learn and be willing to also make mistakes. Mm -hmm. um, and you could make absolutely incredible, really affirming connections as a consequence. Yeah, yeah, I think it all boils down to that. So educating yourself, informing yourself... And coming from a place of compassion. Yes. So you're just another human being. And in reality, it's none of your business, you know, like leave the other person alone if you don't agree. Yeah. And <laughs> you also, know? you know, if you don't think this is relevant to you, then you probably don't know how many people in your life are transgender. 
Mm. Right? You probably yeah. don't know how many of your old high school friends or your mm-hmm. co-workers or the, you know, yeah. the people you chat with when you go get a coffee. Mm-hmm. How many of these people are, um, you know, transgender or not heterosexual um, who are uh, fall within that kind of LGBTQ plus community, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, we're everywhere. And, and if you think that this isn't related to you, my God, it definitely is, especially mm-hmm. if you're planning to have children. Mm-hmm. Um, you should definitely account for the the possibility of having a child that's not straight or or not cisgender. Um, and if if you want to consider yourself an ally, then yes, please, if you can, have conversations with people, do what you can to kind of educate yourself, which obviously there's barriers to that, but there's people trying to create free education around that as well. Um, and also think about kind of what you support, who you mm-hmm. support politically, and also in the media. Mm-hmm. Once again, bloody J.K. Rowling. Um, <laughs> th- th- like, read another book other than Harry Potter, um, and maybe you'll realise that, that it's not really a hill worth dying on, being her biggest fan. Um, yeah, think of, think about what it is that you can do mm. to make people in these communities feel like they're seen. a human being. Yeah, yeah, that they're seen, that they're recognised. Um and that their existence isn't something so divisive that they need to be ostracised from society. I think there's space for all of us. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me today. I've really enjoyed it. I'll put all your details in the description so that everyone <laughs> can access your podcast. Oh, thank you. Yeah, me, myself, like, I need to be a bit more educated and informed in the subject. That's why I have you here today. <laughs> but like we said, talking about this is the first step, you know, into actually broadening the subject and opening people's minds on it yeah Yeah. we all have something to learn and Mm -hmm. that should be something that excites us it should be something that I love getting to a new country and realizing there's something I didn't know Mm -hmm. about this um isn't it cool that humans are so diverse like this um it shouldn't be something that makes us afraid it should be something that inspires us that makes us awestruck you know Mm -hmm. Mm mm-hmm Thanks, guys. So if you have any taboo topics you'd like to talk about, um, please write in the description below or send an email to taboopodcastmalta.com. Thank you.